Okay. So now I have my list. And now I know I've got to make these amends. I don't want to. done some forgiveness prayers. So I think to myself, I'll take the easiest first. So now my mom and dad, first year I'm sober, they invite me over for dinner every Wednesday before my home group. My mother always makes me like lamb chops or something I love. They're very forgiving. They've lent me money. They've given me money. They've, they're on my side, right? And one night, I sit down with them at the table and I say, you know, I know I worried you and I know I hurt you and I know I owed you, I owe you money and uh, I want to make it right. I want to make amends to you. I want to, you know, make it right and everything. Oh, Dave, Dave, that's okay. We love you. We're so glad you're doing so well and whatever. And Really? That's it? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Just keep doing what you're doing. Well, takes care of them, right? Not right. So happens, as most parents do, they get old. And they need help. <laughs> and my dad dies in the early 80s, and my mom needs help with him. And I'm able to go there, and I'm able to help her with some kind of unpleasant things. And I just do. And then she gets older. And she needs help. She needs help paying the bills. She needs her grass cut. She needs her windows washed. She needs to be taken to church every Sunday because I took the car away from her. Oh, God. You know, right? One, <laughs> that was the promise I made her, right? You take that car away from me, you've got to take me to church every Sunday. All right, all right. One cold February day in Buffalo when the roads are closed over. Ma! Roads are closed. State of emergency. I can't take you to church. There's this pause. You said every Sunday. <laughs> Pick her up, do the shoveling, take her to church, right? I never did make it up to her. I never, I never got square with her. I never get square with my father. I heard a guy say not too long ago. Remember, we had five teenagers at once, and these were good kids. I was not a good teenager. I was not a bad teenager, but I was not a good teenager. I heard a guy say that children do things that hurt their parents. But children don't do things to hurt their parents. I thought, yeah, I never did all that crap I did. The minor scrapes with the law and drunkenness, whatever. That had nothing to do with them. They were like collateral damage. right? I didn't do things to hurt them. But being a father, being a parent, I know how much it does hurt when a child does something like that. So that was my experience with my mom and dad. Now, when I was first sober, in that first year of sobriety, there were three things that were clear to me. It was like God came to me and said, Dave, I want to give you a vision of your future. Here's your vision. You're never going to get offered a job by any other law firm. None of your kids are ever going to go to college because you'll never have enough money. You're never going to be invited to any of their weddings because they're too ashamed of you. Are you willing to stay sober anyway? This is like a recurrent imagine, you know, vision I had of my future. And the ideal was, okay, if that's it, that's it. I do not want to pick up another drink. If that's, good, if that's what's in the cards for me, then that's what's in the cards for me. So time goes on and I start amending these lawyers that I screwed. And uh, I'm 15 years sober when I amend the last two. One of them had died. I had to talk to his son. Another was still alive. Then I'm through with my, my amends to my lawyer friends. And, 
when I got sober, we started this, I think I told you, this Lawyer Helping Lawyers Committee, and uh, I became kind of active in that. And then uh, they asked me to run for Bar Association in Erie County. I ran for the Bar Association and uh, Board of Directors, and I got elected to the Board of Directors of the Bar Association. I thought to myself, this is, Dave, you know, this is a nice way to, to make amends to this profession, which has been good to you. So I served on that board for three years, and, and then they asked me to run for president of the Bar Association, 3,800 lawyers, you know, and I won. And so I served as president of the Bar Association. I served as president-elect for a, a year and then as president for a year. And I tell you this because during that year, I get a call from a guy, a partner at the biggest firm in Buffalo. Dave, can we have lunch? I'm like, Sure. And he offers me a job at this biggest firm in Buffalo, right? We think you would fit in beautifully in our such and such department. We'd like to have you as part of the team and whatever. And I knew from that first year of sobriety, nobody would ever offer me another job. And here's a guy from the biggest firm in Buffalo offering me a job. I just think, I'm laughing. Now, I know guys who work for that firm, and they really work hard. I didn't want to work that hard. So I said, thanks so much. Thank you. But eh, I think I'm going to stick with my own little soul practice here. I'm doing okay. Okay, Dave, let us know if you change your mind. Oh, man, I left. So uh, as president of the Bar Association, one of the things you've got to do is go to the law school in Buffalo and sit on the stage with all the other professors and whatever while the guys, all the students get their diplomas. And it just so happened that year, my oldest boy was getting his law degree from Buffalo Law School. And they asked me to hand him his diploma. And so they called his name. He walks across the stage. I come up from all the guys with the stripes on and everything. I go and I give him his diploma and I give him a hug. And I'm bawling and I'm walking back to my seat. And there's like this cheering. I swear to God, there's like people are on their feet clapping. And I'm thinking, how do they know this miracle? How do they possibly know this is a miracle? And I sit down, and the next person to get a degree is a woman in a wheelchair. Of course, they're cheering her, see. <laughs> I thought it was about me. But, you know, I knew that, he, that none of those kids would go to college, and all of those kids went to college, you know. All of them went to college, especially with my wife's help and with their help, too. In 1994, um, my wife and I always, always went to, in January to the State Bar Association meeting in New York City, and, and she couldn't go. She was a nurse, and she had some union negotiations to do. So I went alone in New York to, my, to New York City to this, for this week. And uh, my youngest boy, Brendan, was uh, going to school at Fordham in the Bronx. And Brendan and I were like oil and water, you know. He was a... I used to say to him, you have got more brains and less common sense than anybody God ever put on earth. You know, he would get in these scrapes and whatever, and his mother would say, you've got to talk to him. And I'd talk to him, and he's like, yeah, right. You don't even live with me. You know? oh. At any rate, we weren't some particle. But I spent this week with him because my wife couldn't go. And I stayed in his dorm room a couple of nights, and we went out to dinner with his buddies. and His girlfriend came in, and we went to art galleries and whatever, and... You know, at the end of that week, I was square with him. How beautiful I was. And you know what? He was square with me. I know he was. I could tell by looking at him. We were, you know. And uh, on February 
5th, just three weeks later, he was walking across Fordham Road back to school and he got hit by a car. And he died instantly. You know, and there's a lot of people in AA who have lost children. I know that. But not all of us are square with those kids, you know. Sometimes there's been a lot of arguments and a lot of recriminations and whatever. But you know, I was square with him. And, uh, you know, I got to go down there and I come back and we're here. a couple of days later we have this wake. And before the wake begins, this big guy in Buffalo we call Pink Cloud Paul, his name is. And he walks into the funeral home and this is before anybody shows, shows up. And he comes over and he's this big Irish guy with big blue eyes, big mitts. He takes my hand and he says, uh, Dave, you know, my daughter died at 23 years of age of cancer. Yeah, and he says, and my son died 18 months later, 21 years of age of cancer. So I didn't know that, Bonnie. And he says to me, you're going to be okay. And I knew because another AA guy reached out his hand, shared his experience with me. I could feel it from the top of my head to my bottom of my feet. I was going to be okay. I knew that. How beautiful is that, you know? And later that summer... My oldest boy gets married, and of course his brother was going to be his best man. And my boy asked me to be his best man at his wedding. <clears throat> and I wasn't going to be invited to any of those weddings, right? I knew that. I knew that when I was out here sober. And after that, the next to get married is my stepdaughter. And she says to me, Dave, would you walk me down the aisle with my dad on one side and you on the other? Thank you. You, I'd love to. You know, and then my daughter got married. And I was, I was involved with that, appropriately involved with that. And my stepson got married. And I was appropriately involved at that wedding. So they're all married. And you've given us these eight grandchildren, you know. So, I'll finish with telling you the story about amends to my ex wife that I hated so much. Time goes on. And we're sitting in a hockey rink, and I'm sitting in a hockey rink watching some grandchildren skate, and she comes down and she sits next to me. She initiates a conversation. We don't talk at all, all right? At birthday parties and at graduations and stuff, she avoids me, I avoid her. She sits down next to me and she starts talking to me. And it comes to pass that we agree on one thing, and that is that our son is not raising these grandchildren the way we would, right? <laughs> so we, said, we have some common agreement in that. So she opened the door. And then time goes on, and if you had asked me, did you ever amend her? Did you ever give her formal amends for being a drunk, for crushing her dreams? I would have said, yeah, why? Well, yeah, yeah, I think I said I was sorry, and I made my payments, and I, you know, but it was always this nagging thing. So I got a friend, Frank, who belongs to the North Buffalo group with me, and Frank usually, has, for years, has picked me up to go to the meetings, and. Uh, he, he was kind of ill, he had an operation, so I had to start picking him up, and he lives on the same street that my ex-wife lives on. So I'm dropping Frank off after the meeting one night, and I said, you know, I still own half that house, pointing to the house where she lives with that guy who moved in. And he says, look how your life has turned out, look how her life has turned out. Give her the house. It's the only thing I, I didn't, you know... It's 25 years ago, and I still, you know, I didn't get anything else out of it. I got all the debts. And, 
So, I don't know, I'm starting to think about that. So I talked to Chuck about it, and I talked to my sponsor about it, and I said, I'm thinking of giving him a house, you know. And, uh, so I don't know. I, weeks go on and months go on and whatever, and finally I, I get the courage to talk to my wife about it. So I say to my wife, Joanne, uh, you know, I don't know if I've ever really appropriately amended Jan, my first wife. I don't know. I said, but, you know, I'm thinking of giving her my half interest in that house. And it's a beautiful house. And I had to think it through, you know. What if I give it to her and she sells it the next day and gets 200 grand of mine? Or what if she gives it to him? Or what if, you know, I had to get by all these things. So my wife says to me, well, let me get this straight. If you die, I'm going to own half that house with her. And I said, yeah. She says, give it a house. <laughs> so, I give it a house. And so, time passes, and I'm picking up Frank, and I'm dropping him off. We're going by the house, and I say to Frank, I gave you the house. He said, what are you talking about? I said, remember when we passed here, you know, a little while ago, and you said, look how your life has turned out, look how her life has turned out. Why don't you give her the house? I said, I gave her the house. And Frank says to me, I don't ever remember saying that. <laughs> I swear to God. I don't know if I dreamt it. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, Bill Wilson says this, it works, it really does. And when he says that, it's like he's as surprised as we are. This stuff works, it really does. So I, no, she's not in my wheelhouse anymore. Those lawyers that I hurt and screwed aren't in my wheelhouse anymore. And as time goes on, as we'll talk about after dinner tonight, as things come up, I can take care of them. i got this path that you people have walked before me. You've walked this path. See, I can't see my own path ahead of me. I can see my path behind me. And I can see your path behind you, but I can't see the path ahead of me. But here's what I know from coming here and being here, is that you have walked whatever path I'm going to walk from here on in. You've walked it before me. I know you have. And you've done it with dignity and grace and sober. Thanks. Now we're going to break for dinner. We'll be back for the meeting at 8. Thanks, Austin. Uh, my name is Dave Fallsgrave. I'm an alcoholic. Yay. I am a member of the North Buffalo group of AA. Uh, we've had some fun this afternoon, I think. Uh, Chuck and I have tried to share our experience with the steps. We're not trying to improve on or interpret the big book or the 12 and 12. Just tell you a little bit about our experience and our, and our journey through these steps. You know, I know this is a, this is a terrific group. I can feel the energy here. I really, I mean that. I mean, and our book says in a couple of places, it's the fellowship that we crave. We crave the fellowship of AA. We don't crave God. We don't. Tra- God knows we don't crave the twelve steps. <laughs> but we crave the fellowship. You know, and that's what I craved in all those bars I sat in. All those bars. I, those guys understood me, man. You know, 
I'd go in there and I'd say, you know, you, you know what she wanted me to do? Did, you, did I tell you what she wanted? You're kidding. Give Dave a drink, right? <laughs> Next guy would say, you know, I was a block from home when that freaking cup. Is that, give Louie a drink, right? It was the fellowship. We understood each other in those bars, right? Of course, every once in a while I'd say, what happened to Jerry? Where's Jerry, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. he, might have gone, he might be gone, you know, whatever. But the fellowship we have here, it's this talking to each other before the meeting and after the meeting about our successes and our problems and, and each of us giving each other hugs or shaking hands and saying, I know how you feel. I've been there, man. I know how you feel. It'll get better. If you keep coming around here, keep sitting on those chairs, things are going to get better. And we know that, I know that, because that's happened to me, and I know that because that's happened to you, and I see it time and time and time again. You know, I'm sponsor a guy right now who's drinking, and he has so many freaking problems, and he has no clue, he can't possibly see how these meetings and these steps could possibly help him out of these problems. What, they have, what do they have to do with his finances and with seeing his kids and with job hunt and stuff like that? Come on, please, I need, you know, I need money, I need job, I need... Uh. Well, I'll try 90 and 90, I suggested to him two weeks ago. Yeah, I got, I, he had other plans. But he gave me a text today. Maybe I'll do 90 and 90. It's not going so well for him, you know. So we talked about steps 1 through 9 earlier today. And tonight we're going to talk about steps 10, 11, and 12, which I know are all your favorites. And the tenth step is continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. When I got to the North Buffalo group, the, the oldest member of our group was a guy named Dick, and he was a laborer, and he didn't have a lot of education, but he was a pretty wise man. And he would say the most important word in the 12 steps is the word continue. Continue to take personal inventory. Continue to go to the meetings. Continue to easy does it. Continue to one day at a time. Continue to live and let live. Continue to reach out your hand. Continue to be responsible. You know, I'd been in AA before, and I had failed. My alcohol, my active alcoholism had come back. As I look back upon why, and there's a lot of different reasons, but if you could, you could put all those different reasons under one heading, and that was I didn't continue. You know, I didn't continue with this thing. I got everything back I was in danger of losing. And I figured, well, this AA program is unbelievable. I loved AA. I just loved it. And if you've got to keep coming until you get your wife back and your kids back and get a better job and get a chance of getting out of debt and whatever, keep coming, man. But I got mine, you know. It was like that. I got it back like that. And I didn't continue to keep coming. And, of course, I got drunk. And then when I woke up, this past time, on May 21st, 1979, it was all gone. Everything was gone. Everything. It was dear to me, including my self-respect. Uh, so I think continue to take personal inventory is wise advice. And it says, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted. It doesn't say if we were wrong. It says when we were wrong. And that's a tough pill to swallow for an alcoholic, at least for this alcoholic. I don't like to be wrong. Man. I really don't. I don't like to have to say I was wrong. It hurts me. It hurts my ego. It hurts my self-respect. It hurts, you know. It's tough for this alcoholic to admit he was wrong. And I tell you, there's a big difference between saying you're wrong 
and saying you're sorry. If my wife and I, if I, if I do something that is not appropriate in our marriage or say something that's not right or whatever, if I say I'm sorry, I mean it. But saying you're sorry is a thing dangling on the end of it that you may have a part in that too, you know. Well, I'm sorry I said that. There's this butt hanging out there, you know. Excuse me, my butt too. <laughs> but if I say I'm wrong, that's it. I'm wrong. It's nothing to do with you. I'm not talking about what you did or what you said or what I was wrong. Not I'm sorry and or but whatever, you know. So when we were wrong, promptly admitted. That's another tough pill to swallow. I'm not that kind of person. I'm just not sewn together that way. That I have to go through a lot of pain usually until I own up to something, until I make an amend, until I admit I was wrong. You know. But there was a guy at the men's group when I first came around. He, little Irish guy named Bill, and he always looked up in the air when he was talking at the tables. He always had a cigar. And he'd say, my sponsor told me that it's easier to eat crow when it's young and tender than when it's old and tough. (laughs) That's pretty good. And it's true. So now when I'm wrong, I try to go immediately to correct that wrong and say I was wrong. And I mean immediately. If something, you know, things fall out of my mouth that just are lies or just wrong or or inconsiderate. or hurtful or whatever. And when that, I can tell when that happens. It hits me in here. And I guess I, I don't know why I said that. I was wrong. That was wrong to say. You know? And it's usually some words that fall out of my mouth. So on 84 and 85 of our book, there's just one paragraph that talks first about the 10th step. But then it says some promises from this 10th step thing, from continuing. And these are pretty amazing promises. We have ceased fighting anyone or anything, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. Meaning we're fairly confident we're not going to pick up the next drink. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we will recoil from it like a hot flame. We will react sanely and normally. We will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. Well without any thought or effort. We've done nine pretty tough steps before this, you know. I would say there's been some effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky, nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Um, so by this time, you know, we talked today, earlier today about when we come in here to Alcoholics Anonymous, we really have a menu of reactions to life that are pretty, we all pretty much have the same ones. You know, anger, frustration, despair, hatred, uh, a fe- resentment, a feeling of being treated unfairly, uh, Quick reactions to whatever anyone says to us, denial, argumentative. These are, you know, if I take out the menu of my reactions, that's what I'm looking at. I can pick any one of those at any time when we walk into the room, right? But by now we've done a lot of work. 
We've done a lot of inventories, right? Uh, we've done amends. We've asked God to get invite, involved in our life. We've thrown in the towel a lot of times. Said, I can't, I don't know how to fix me. You've got to fix me. Whatever you do, do it, right? And so now I turn the page on, these, uh, on this menu of reactions I have to life. And so maybe I can be kind. Maybe I can be tolerant. Maybe I can be a good listener. Maybe I can be useful. Maybe I can reach out my hand to another person. Maybe I do actions I don't want to take. You know, instead of just at the beginning, I'll never return that phone call. Maybe I'll return the phone call to the guy I don't want to. You know? So my, my menu of reactions have changed by this time. Because sanity will, has returned. So it also says what we have, it reminds us again that what we ha- really have is a daily reprieve from this alcoholism. Contingent on the maintenance, doing work, of our spiritual condition. A daily reprieve. I think I said earlier today, I believe that each day I wake up with a new case of alcoholism. Every morning, I have today's case. This is Saturday's case, June 27th's case of alcoholism. That's why I woke up with this morning. I've never had this case of alcoholism before, right? I haven't. I have the mind of an alcoholic and the body can't tolerate it. I still have that. But because I've done these steps before this, these promises have come true in my life. I don't think about drinking anymore. But I have a healthy respect for it. So I believe on a daily basis, I have to put something between me and that next drink every day. Now, that's not a real big burden. But I put a higher power between me and that next drink. And I ask that higher power on my knees in the morning to give me the willingness to take whatever action is necessary I'm supposed to take today to stay sober, whatever it is. I don't ask him to keep me sober. I ask him to give me the inside willingness to do what I'm, I'm supposed to do to stay sober. I talked a little earlier today about my first sponsor. And he was a loser. He was in and out of AA for 25 years. Been in our county hospital 87 times, his last admission. He was a loser. I asked him to be my sponsor because I didn't know he was a loser. He was my second cousin. I knew him. He knew his way around the rooms. He knew some people and stuff. So I asked him to be my sponsor. Nobody would ask Tom to be their sponsor. Nobody. It'd be crazy to ask him. 25 years in and out. So he died with 14 years of sobriety. So people who knew him would say to Tom, Tom, what's the difference? You were in and out of these rooms for 25 years. You were a great power of example to the rest of us. You did all that drinking that we didn't have to do. Well, now you're sober. You're sober a year. You're sober five years. You're sober ten. What's the difference? Can you point? Say, absolutely. I know what the difference is. He says, all those years I was in AA and getting drunk, if you had asked me, was I willing to take the action necessary to stay sober, I would have said, absolutely, and I would have passed all eye detector tests. He said, but I wasn't willing. I was born without willingness. Some people are born without legs or without eyesight. Or I was born without willingness, he says. But every morning I ask God for the willingness to take the actions necessary to stay sober. And sometimes I've got to ask for the willingness to be willing to ask to be given the actions, to be told the actions that are necessary to stay sober. And he said, I think that's the difference today. Um, it talks a little bit about, uh, in this step, uh, um, and it, it kind of rolls over into the next step, but it talks about the ten questions, uh, inventory at night that we take. By the, by the way, the inventories that we take in AA are not about our feelings. 
They're not asking us about how we feel about things. They're asking me about actions. What actions did I take or did I not take? So at night when you're supposed to ask yourself those ten questions about your day, when you reflect upon your day, uh, everybody does that a little bit differently if we do it at all. Uh, and, and I have memorized those ten questions. You know, was I resentful? Was I... Uh, uh, I can't even think of them. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep now. That's why I'm not. Uh, and I asked myself, and I asked God to be invi- invited into that inventory taking. I said, Show, tell me, you know, if I just review my day, I'm going to skip something. Get involved here, God. Now let me know how I've done today. And I go over all those ten questions. And at the end of that, it says, we ask God's forgiveness and ask him to show us what corrective measures should be taken. Now, I really believe that there is a power in here that if I ask it to be involved in my life, it will be involved in my life. I believe that because that's my experience and because that's your experience, too. My first sponsor used to say, Dave, the higher power is a gentleman. He will not butt in your life. But if you ask, God could and would if he were sought, right? If he were sought. So when I say, please forgive me and show me what corrective measures should be taken, if I have done something that I regret during the day, I expect him to show me the next day what corrective measures should be taken. I expect to have the willingness to go make an amend, to say to somebody I was wrong, to pay the money back, to correct the lie, to, to do something I should have done that I didn't do when somebody asked me to do it. I expect to be shown the way to do that. Um, we'll talk a little bit uh, uh, after this, about uh, steps 11 and 12, but uh, I think that's all I got on step 10. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Uh, my name is Chuck Meinhauer. I'm an alcoholic. Um, so, this, uh, the eighth step um, talks about. Forgiveness, and we we did that forgiveness prayer earlier, and uh, and that's you know a process that really works. Uh, but one of the things that it says uh, that I think is really important is that uh, before we begin this process, uh, we should forgive everyone, one and all. Why not? We're about to go to ask them to forgive us, and so. Beginning in this eighth step and through the ninth step and steps ten and eleven where we're identifying people that, that we think have wronged us, the very important part of this whole process is to begin by forgiving them. So when I begin to do my 10-step inventory, and I'm starting to write down the problems of that day, uh, if I think someone has wronged me, the first thing I need to do is to forgive them. Uh, and that was a big change for me because you know I didn't know how I didn't know about forgiveness. Um, I agree with D- Dave about the difference between wrong and sorry. You know I was forty some years old when I began to get a sense of this thing that uh, maybe there's a difference. I used to tell people all the time I was sorry, um, and you know about the fourth time I told someone I was sorry for doing the same thing. They would say, well, you know, you, you, last week you did that and you said you were sorry, you know. And my thought was, I can't believe you're holding that against me. <laughs> you know, my God, that was last week. You're going to throw the past in my face? What kind of a relationship are we going to have? 
You want to get down to details here? You know, I've got a few things about you, too. <laughs> well, that's the problem with sorry. But when it's wrong, there's no question about it. Now, I was 40-something. Uh, one night we were having dinner, and uh, you weren't, for those of you who weren't here this afternoon, um, I was able to, I got divorced in sobriety, I, I lost my job in sobriety, uh, but I had to lose those two things to get a wonderful marriage, and it's just a wonderful work situation. Um, uh, part of those nine-step promises, uh, I met my wife in recovery, we're both in recovery, we both have 25 years of uh, uh, sobriety, um, I, I worked for most of my sobriety with Dave uh, as my partner. We worked together and uh, Dave retired. And my current partner, Lori, is also in recovery. Um, so what that tells me, of course, is that like I'm on the world's shortest leash. <laughs> uh, if I go to work, I've always had someone in recovery looking over me. I go home, my wife is in recovery. I uh, so my sobriety must always be in jeopardy here. I... <laughs> but be that as it may, I have this wonderful life and a life of great peace. And in the process of that, I, I, I have three children, a wonderful son uh, who's 33 and, and two daughters who are uh, 19 and 20. Um, I learned through my son when he began using, uh, experimenting with alcohol and drugs and heavily using them, uh, I learned the real extent of the nature of the pain and suffering that I caused my parents. And in, in the course of this 10-step inventory, uh, I came to realize that I had to make further amends to uh, my mother who had died and to my dad. Um, because I, I never really understood the harm that was caused. I, you know, I thought they were like incidental. If anybody got hurt in this process, it was me. Um, and I really had to redo all the, the amends uh, as a result of that. Now, I, uh, I thought uh, my son was a, uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I was like just wrong. I was wrong. He was immature. Uh, and at 19 or 20, you can make a lot of mistakes. And, uh, but he's, he's grown up. He's had a job for 11 years. He's a responsible person. He lives alone. Uh, it's a lot of fun. For four years, he was in our house. He didn't talk to us. Uh, now we have a wonderful relationship with him. Uh, and it's because of AA, because I, I wanted him to live a certain life. And I found out through this, because I kept inventorying in this 10th step, I eventually realized that his life was none of my business. His life was his life. And maybe, I, in fact, I have the world's best plan for him. I know what would work for him better than anybody on earth. Uh, but that's just my plans for him. My job is to love him. And, you know, run underneath him. And maybe if he falls off that tight wire, if there's a chance, maybe I can break his fall. But after that, what he does is what he does. And he's going to do something in his life that will take him to a place where he will want to seek a relationship with God. And I don't know how he's going to get there. I hope it's not the way that I did. But that's true, I think, for every human being. 
And the route that I chose was a very painful route. And it was a route of, of, of immaturity uh, and, and adolescence in a 40-year-old man. And it's an impossible way to live. So I take this 10-step inventory so that I can get a handle on that. I can see, am I beginning to turn away? Have I turned my back on this higher power? Am I beginning to behave in the way that an alcoholic behaves? Am I restless, irritable, and discontented? If the answer to that is yes, my mind tells me I'm restless, irritable, and discontented because I don't like what my wife is saying to me. I don't like how she's interacting with the kids. I don't like what the kids are doing. I don't like what's going on at work. I... But the truth is that I'm restless, irritable, and discontented because I'm not connected to the higher power. Because when I'm connected to that higher power, I am at perfect peace and ease, regardless of what goes on. It doesn't matter. When I'm connected to that higher power, it's 85 and sunny inside of me. It doesn't matter what else goes on. So it might be raining out there today, and it might be in the 60s. But inside here, it's 85 and sunny, and that's just a wonderful place to be. You know? And When I came to AA, there were no 85 and sunny days. It was all just pain. It was horrible. Today would have looked like an 85 and sunny day out there. Uh, so that storm is passing. But I need to take these inventories, and I take them so that I can continue to remain an active and useful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, of my family, of my employment, and of society as a whole. And when I do that, I live at peace. So my two daughters were young, and the little one does something to the older sister. And I said, well, tell, tell your sister that you are wrong. And she like, she's three years old, and she's looking at me, she says, No. I said, tell her that you were wrong. She says, no. So this goes on for two or three times, and then finally I'd say to her, I said, look, you've got to tell your sister that you were wrong. What you did was wrong. And she looks at me and she says, sorry, not wrong. (laughs) This little kid knew the difference, you know. (laughs) Unbelievable. So that was a real lesson. I mean, I, by that time, I was 49, and I'm just trying to get a handle on this thing, and this three-year-old's already sorted it out. Uh, so, when I was a little shaver, I grew up out in Warsaw, New York. And Warsaw is a little town, about 3,500 people. And uh, I was a little shaver, and, and uh, the word comes out that the circus is coming to town. And... Uh, they're going to, it's going to be set up in Everhart's. They have a, a horse farm, and, and they were a very wealthy family. They donated the land, and they're going to, the Barnum and Bailey Ringling Brothers Three Ring Circus is going to come to Warsaw, New York. You know, like it's a, a heck of an event. It's a big thing, and uh, they come and they march down Main Street with the elephants and the tigers and the lions and the cages and all the animals and. The stomping, and it was unbelievable. And they go down, and they set up the tent, and uh, my dad takes my brother and I to the uh, circus. So we get in there, and we're watching, and it's the trapeze is going, and the tightrope walkers, and all the acts, and the lion tamer, and the the guy who sticks his head in the lion's mouth, and 
then it's some, the, the, the music starts playing and out come the elephants, you know. And they're huge, big animals. And they come out and they're running around and they come circling around the circle. And there's a guy uh, running behind him and he's, and he's got a shovel. And I say to my dad, I said, Dad, what's that guy doing with the shovel? He says, well, wait a minute, you'll see. <laughs> sure enough, they're running around. One of the elephants drops a load. The guy runs up with the shovel, grabs it, throws it into the bucket with this guy that's behind him. And he does that for the whole show. And what I realize is that that's what the 10th step is all about. Right? <laughs> At the end of the day, I got a shovel. I'm going to clean up this mess. I worked really hard to clear out this, all this mess. And I found out in that process that no matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, without God's help, I would continue to make a mess and I would never be able to clean that up. And so I saw that I I could access this power and this power did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It took away all of those things that blocked me from him. And so in this 10-step inventory on a daily basis and throughout the day sometimes, I ask God to take my inventory. And I ask him those questions. Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Was I inconsiderate? I go through this list. I ask him, you tell me if I was. Because if Chuck Beinhauer takes his inventory, the only conclusion he's going to come to is it was Sue B's fault. It was that employee. It was that lawyer. So I know that if I stay involved in this process and my ego is trying to run the show, it will lead me down a path that will take, take me back to drinking and a life of self-destruction. It's impossible for me to take my own inventory. And I, you know, I need to be aware of that. So today I, I look forward to it. I mean, at the end of the day, I look forward to taking this inventory. It's, it's an amazing process because I, I, can, I can turn away from this power for 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I truly believe that spiritual axiom that whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. And that what is wrong with me is that I'm disconnected from the higher power. That doesn't mean that I can't be sad. It doesn't mean that I can't be angry. It doesn't mean that I can't be fearful. There are situations in life that call for those emotions. Those are normal human emotions that all of us should experience. But my problem is that I dwell on them and I, and I seek them and I, you know, I live off of these things. Uh, and that's what's so unhealthy and that's what's so destructive. Uh, when my father died, I was sad, but I could celebrate his death because we had made amends. I went down and I could talk to him. I could say to my dad, are you afraid of dying? And he said, no, he wasn't. And that was a great relief to me. This is a man that I didn't even want. I didn't care if he was alive for the first 43 years of my life. And we had this wonderful relationship at the end. And 
I knew he loved me, and he knew I loved him. And that was a miracle. That's the healing power of this power. And I don't want to go to that place where I separate myself from God and from all the other human beings. I don't want to live there anymore. So I adopt and I believe that spiritual axiom. And so when I do get upset, the check marks go crazy, you know. And 30 seconds off the beam, and I can fill in more negative emotions than Carter has looked, had little, little liver pills. I mean, it was, it's unbelievable uh, how, much, how quickly this will happen. Uh, but I can identify that today. In my real experience, my, my definition of joy today, of happiness, is that I know what I feel when I'm feeling it. I had no idea what I was feeling. None. None. And I had no idea what caused the feelings. I was completely disconnected. I was totally miswired. If I was afraid, I laughed. If I was happy, I cried. This became a real defense mechanism that I used so that people could never get close to me. If, so, if I'm happy and I look sad, people come up to me and they say, what's wrong? I say, nothing, I feel great. They look at me like, what? you don't look like you feel great. You know? People say, well, maybe you tell your face that. <laughs> but my thought was, you know, I can't believe they don't know I'm happy. How could they not know that? I could read their mind, so I assumed that they could read mine. But all that it really was was a method to separate myself from people and to continue to engineer a life of failure. Um, and that's really what, what was going on in my life. I was given a lot of talents, uh, and I uh, abused them um, and wasted them for much of my life. Uh, but I wasn't aware of it. That's the disease of alcoholism for me. So they say in the, in the big book, that in the 12 and 12, that pain is the touchstone of spiritual progress. And a touchstone, uh, in medieval times, they found a, a stone. And, and what you would do with it is you would take a rock that you thought was gold and you would scrape it on it, to touch it to it. And if it was just a rock, if it was fool's gold, it would just come out gray. But if it was the real thing, you would get a yellow streak and you knew that you had gold. And that was called a touchstone. That's how you would know whether or not you had gold. So for me, what this means is that pain is the touchstone. So if I'm connected to God and I strike that stone, uh, I'm going to be fine. It's going to come out gray. But if I strike that stone and it comes out yellow, that, not, that pain is what's showing up. And that tells me that what I'm doing is I'm thinking about myself again. That the spiritual, it's, for me, it's not a religious type of thing. It's not a pious thing. It's am I thinking of others and what I can do to help meet their needs? That's the question I need to ask. And if I feel these, these negative feelings, I'm feeling them because I'm behaving in a way that separates me from other people. And that separation from other people is the life that I lived as a problem drinker. So if I want to live the life of an ex-problem drinker, 
I need to ask God for the power to think of others. I lack power. Lack of power is our dilemma. So I need to ask him for that power. And I do that in the 11th step. I seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. The ninth step promises in, this, in our book of recovery are, are wonderful promises. And they came true for me. I have a, a wonderful wife, a wife who's in recovery. I have three children. I have my sponsor and my partner, Dave, my partner, Lori, uh, wonderful friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, an opportunity to live a useful life. I have a law practice that's, that is, uh, provides a living for myself and my family and for many employees. Um, I've, really, I've been blessed beyond belief. I've had my share of pain and failures. Ten years into sobriety, I got involved in a business venture and lost everything. I lost all of our savings, all the money that we're putting away for our children's education. Uh, went deeply into debt. Um, but I've worked, worked and worked and worked, and I worked my way through it. And every month I keep making payments, and eventually that's going to be done. But I didn't run away. I talked about my business failure in 1979, and I ran away from that. I ran away with alcohol and drugs. I ran away with uh, uh, filing personal bankruptcy. And that didn't happen this time. I faced the same situation in sobriety that I faced when I was drinking, but I reacted differently. And the spiritual awakening, as we said earlier, is an alteration, profound alteration, in the way that we react to life. So in the 11th step, I seek through prayer and meditation to improve that conscious contact. The 10th step prayer promises, which I think are fantastic, are that we have been restored to sanity and we will now have a conscious awareness of the presence of the power. And that's what's happened to me. I, I know that there is a power now. I know that. I don't need to describe it, and I feel no desire to do that. But I know that it's there. You know, a man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. When I got into AA, I had no experience, but I had lots of arguments. I was an atheist for the second time. I could tell you why it would be a waste of my time to try to find a power that doesn't even exist anyway. That's ridiculous. And I wanted, all I wanted to do was fight. You know, I was born with a pair of boxing gloves on. And when those boxing gloves come out, who's ever around gets punched. And I get punched too, but that's what I know how to do. I live my life that way. That was my experience. I was always in the ring. And alcohol loved it. Alcohol loved to get me in the ring because it knew it had me beat. And I just had to throw in that towel. And a big part of the process of this inventory process in the 10th and 11th step for me is to see, am I putting on those gloves again? And to ask him to please take them off. Because I don't want to fight anyone or anything anymore. I really do want to be patient and tolerant. That's what our code is. Dave taught me this a long time ago. He said, if you want to live in a win-win situation, particularly with your wife, you have to start out by admitting that she's right. Right? 
Doesn't that sound crazy? But if it's going to be a win-win, it can't possibly be unless your spouse is right and then you just have to agree with it. Life is like a million times easier when I do that. When I don't, it's just the same old thing. I just start backpedaling, jabbing, punching, and it's no fun anymore. I don't want to go there. And it's really hard for the people who are around me when I do that. So these inventories help me to stay in that place. My friend Ira, who died of this disease uh, a year ago, year and a half ago, told me 20 years ago, 25 years ago, at a meeting at the Delaware Discussion Group Friday afternoon in Buffalo, he said, uh, if you're seeking God, you've found him. And I believed him. And I wish he could have believed himself. But I think that that's true. I know that that's true. So in this 11 step, we're seeking through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with him. And how do we do that? We pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. This morning I asked God what he wanted me to do. He told me to tell people that he loves us and he cares about us. And if we ask him for help, he'll help us. And so throughout the day, I turn to this power. And whenever anything happens in my life, I try to stop, pause, and ask him for his guidance and direction. For ask him, ask him what he would have me do. And oftentimes what will happen is I'll get a phone call or I'll get a text or I'll reach out to Dave and ask, tell him the situation. And I get a suggestion that had just never occurred to me, had never crossed my mind. And I know that that's a power. That's, what, that's what's going on. There's no, don't, there's no human power that can relieve this alcoholism from me. But that doesn't mean that the power can't work through human beings. And that 11-step prayer says that we are a channel of his power. Now I see the 10th and 11th step like, like blueprints. The 11th step for me in that 11th step prayer is a blueprint on life. It's telling us how to live. It says when, when there is a situation of hatred, if you're in the presence of hatred, bring love. Just bring love. Not, don't jam it down their throat. Don't force it. Just bring it. Put it on the table. If there's discord, bring harmony. If there's despair, bring hope. It tells us what to bring in situations where other people are in, in a negative place. And if we bring that, and if they decide to take it, they'll get out of it. Or maybe they won't. I used to, you know, they have these things in Buffalo. I imagine they have them here. They're potluck meals. So every, you invite all these people, and it's a big social event, and you just tell them to bring stuff. And you have no idea what anybody's going to bring. But somehow, with, a, with almost no planning, you end up with a lot of appetizers, a lot of main courses, a lot of side dishes. It all works out. 
So, and I hated those things because I like to cook. You know, I'm a pretty good cook. I like to do it. And I'd be invited to these things, and I would go, and I would put this thing on the table. And it, then the rest of my night was ruined. I couldn't eat anything. I'm watching the pot. Somebody walks by it. I go up to them. You, you ought to try this. It's really pretty good. They don't want it. I got to burn. A couple of pots run dry before mine. I'm out of my mind. How could that happen? They can't stand my food. Today, I go to a potluck dinner. I put the dinner on the table. I eat my meal. I never. I don't care. I bring it. Before all I did was bring a resentment. You know, I brought expectations. I wanted people to tell me how wonderful it was, how great it was. Even if they ate the whole thing, if somebody didn't tell me, I'd be mad at them. And so, that's the 11th step, the first half of the 11th step for me, is like that potluck dinner. I need to bring it, put it on the table. Whatever anyone does with it, they do with it. And it was so true in sponsorship. So true. I know that I cannot, I cannot make anyone stop drinking. I can't. And I can't make anyone drink. I can't do that. I lack the power. But what I can do is I can share my story with them. I think what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is we show our wounds. We do these first nine steps and we discover, we uncover all of our scars, all of our wounds, and we tell our story and we let them put their hands in our wounds. And if they do, they will believe. And if they don't, they won't. But we can't make anyone do that. So what a relief. I'll, I need to tell my story. I'm telling my story. Dave's telling his story. I'm not an expert on Alcoholics Anonymous at all. I have an experience with this book, and, I, and God gives me the power to share that story, whatever it is. So I think the 11th step is a, it's an architectural blueprint. It tells us what to bring, and we can look to see if we brought it. And it tells us what to do. It says to seek to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood. So that's what I need to do in the course of my day. When I see people, I need to try to love them, comfort them, and understand them. I spent my whole life saying, I want to love, comfort, and understand you, but you love, comfort, and me first. You understand. After you do that, then you're going to have the greatest lover, comforter, and understander in the world. And of course, that never happened. And had they done that, and people did try to do that, I was unable to accept that love. I rejected it. So, that's the blueprint. Now, if you're a really wealthy person, after you pay an architect to build the the blue to make the blueprints, and they build the house, you then get the as-built plans. Because during the course of construction, things change all the time. They, they, you know, you, the wife says, I don't want that wall there. I want it over here. And I want you know, two sinks in the bathroom. And I, I don't want the kids' bathroom here. And you know, they just change it all. And, uh, and the husband says, I want the workshop over here. And I want my man cave on the other side of the house because I don't like the morning sun. And 
it goes on and on. But when they get done, they have a house, and if you have these as-built plans, and that shows you what really happened. So that 11th step, when I start in the morning and I do that 11th step, I'm setting up my plan for the day. This is how I want to behave. And the 10th step is the... The 10th step is the, is the as-built plan. It shows me what really happened. And I can look at that and I can say, okay, here's the areas I need to improve. Here's what I need to do. It tells me what really happened. I start the day with the ideal, and at the end of the day, I can take a look and see what really happened. And so long as I do that, I'm able to stay, so far, one day at a time, connected to this higher power. And in doing that, I live a life, really, that is happy, joyous, and free. Thanks. Chuck. Okay, we're, we're coming toward the end. Uh, just a couple of things occurred to me when Chuck was talking. One is uh, that the longer I'm, I'm, I'm in AA and the more I go through these steps and try to practice them to the best of my ability, and the more my defects of character get removed by this power and whatever. I find that when I step off the path, when a lie falls out of my mouth, when I say something I shouldn't, when I do something I shouldn't or whatever, I pay a terrible price for it. The longer I'm in AA, I pay a terrible price. When I was first sober, that first year I was sober, I did stuff, you know, my feeling was, I'm not drinking. What do you care if I took one of yours, right? I'm not drinking. Don't you get it? And today, if I, those things that I did that first year I was sober would get me drunk for sure. Now, last year, I started to get this little knot in my stomach. And uh, it started again this Monday. It's the, called the Falls Graph Camp at our house. And we have four grandchildren, ages 13, 10, 4, and 1, four days a week from 7.30 in the morning to 4.30 at night. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful thing. And it is a wonderful thing. But last year, when my wife announced to me that this was going to happen, I thought to myself, she never asked, my, she never asked what I thought about this. I was never consulted on this little deal. And so it's kind of going around in my, not in my stomach and whatever. And so I finally talked to my sponsor about it. And I said, John, you'll understand this. There's nothing basically wrong with this. But don't you think she should have? considered my opinion and said, Dave, what do you think about this? And my sponsor paused and said, Dave, you've got to understand something. You have reached the age of unimportance. <laughs> Your opinion on things really doesn't matter anymore. Maybe they did at one time, but they don't anymore. And when he said that, you know, I laughed. And all the, all the tension was gone and all that knot in my stomach was gone. And then talk, Chuck talked about the win-win thing with your spouse. And, and I, I really rarely give marital advice, but I'm going to give you some tonight. It's a little trick, and if your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend is here, I'm sorry. But there's a little trick you can play at home when your spouse or your partner says something absolutely off the wall. Just something you couldn't possibly agree with in a million years. It's just the craziest thing. 
that you've ever heard in your entire life. It goes against everything you stand for and think for. Well, when you hear that, now you can't do this very often, but when you hear that, you can say to her, you may be right about that. Now, in your mind, you think the chances of her being right are two billion to one, right? But what she hears is, he's finally agreeing with me. Right? Now, you can't use that very often. But. So, the 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That first word of this step is very comforting to me. It's seeking. You know, remember way back in A, B, and C, God could and would if he were sought. Not if he were found. Nobody asks us to find anything in spirit or anything in AA. All we do is seek. That's the best we do. We seek God's will for us. You know, we, we, God could and would if he were sought. This is why I have such great faith in prayer. I have great experience with prayer working. I do. But I just seek through prayer and meditation. Now, my sponsor is, is a great meditator. And he can sit for the longest time and just be quiet and thoroughly enjoy that quiet time. And I'm talking about a long period of time, like an hour or more, whatever. He's not a religious guy, but he spends a lot of time with nuns because he likes what they do and the way they look at life and the way they look at a higher power and the way they look at God. And that's very attractive to him. You know? But he says to me, Dave, prayer and meditation is really the same thing. Don't, talk, don't get confused about one's asking and one's here, you know, whatever. It's all about connecting with a higher power, however you do it. It doesn't matter. If you're praying, that's great. If you're meditating, that's great too. Don't get, you know, too mixed up with the two of those. So it's to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand, not perfect our conscious contact with God as we understand him. So, you know, this, this step, it sounds like, a, oh man, I'll never be able to do that, but it's not a big deal. We're just seeking to improve. I'm not finding anything. I'm not perfecting anything. I may find or I may not. It doesn't matter to the higher power. Well, he just wants us in the game, you know? Stay in the game. Um... I was sober after I finished my amends. I told you earlier today, about 15 years sober when I finished my amends. And you know, up until that time, I was carrying these last two amends with me like a, in a bag over my shoulder. And I knew that if I returned to drinking, it's going to be because I didn't amend these two guys. And that was, you know, that was discomforting for that long a period of time. That my ego would not let me go see these guys. But I did finish those amends. I got them off my list. I felt like a... I weighed nothing. I thought I felt like I could fly, you know. So I went back over the steps and I looked, is there anything else that I haven't done? And I came across this step. And I thought, I've never tried to meditate. I don't even, there's guys at the beginning, Bill and Bob, they must have meditated or they wouldn't have put that down there. They would have just said pray. So I better, I better look at that. The first thing I did is I went to the bookstore and I got a book called Meditation for Dummies. You know, they have that, those books for everything you want to learn about. And it was really quite good. So I read that, and I, had, you know, I thought to myself, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get up 15 minutes earlier every morning, and I'm going to take 15 minutes of quiet time, and I'm going to try to meditate. 
So I started getting up 15 minutes earlier every morning, and then I just found myself getting to work 15 minutes earlier. <laughs> I would sit, I would close my eyes, I would try to breathe, and the next thing you know, I'm out the door. You know? I found it very difficult to do. I still find it difficult to do, but I still seek. And every day I do some seeking, and some, usually in different ways. I've tried all sorts of things with music and with readings and with mantras. Uh, and it's all great stuff. Uh, I, I'm just not very good at it. I'm not very good at a lot of things, and that's one of them. But I try. I seek. Now, praying only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. I have a list of people that if I hear somebody's having trouble with AA or somebody outside of AA is ill or has a worry about someone, I put them on a list. And in the morning I pray for them. And my prayer is, God, I pray that these people find your will for them and have the power to carry that out. I'm on that list. My kids are on that list. My grandchildren are on that list. My wife's on that list. Guys I sponsor are on that list. People I hear about who are struggling are on that list. A couple of people I've met today are going to go on that list tomorrow. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Um, How do we know, and if you hear this at a lot of AA tables, what God's will for me is? How do I find that out? Now, it's very confusing, right? I, when I was sober a couple of three years, and somebody offered me a job, and I had started my own little soul practice as a lawyer. And I was sitting at a table in North Buffalo, and I, and I put this on the table. I said, you know, I have, a, I have a, this little business I started, but I got offered this job, and I just don't know what the heck to do. I don't know how to do it. And a guy who we saw get a 39-year trip this morning at our meeting, was at the table. And he said, did you ever think it could be this simple, Dave? That in the morning you ask for knowledge of God's will for you and the power to carry that out, and then you just go about your business for the day. And what happens is God's will for you. What? (laughs) He said, maybe it could be just that simple, you know? How do you know? Chuck says that it's easy to tell if something's God's will for you or not. If you're you're thinking about others, it's God's will for you. If you're thinking about yourself, it probably isn't. At least there's not that clear line of demarcation. And I have another guy who says there's a test for finding out what God's will is for you. The first thing you do when you're trying to make a decision is consider your motive. What's your motive? Why are you thinking about taking this path? If it's a good motive, you go on to the second question. And you say, all right, I think this is a good motive that I want to do this, but I need help, God, if this is the right path for me to take. So you pray on it. And then you've, you've, you've got a good motive. You've asked God for help in that motive. And then he says, you just sit back and relax. And you've got the belly test. Then if it feels right, it's God will for you. If it doesn't feel right, it's not God's will for you. But if you've taken those two steps first, considering your motive and then asking him to get involved in this problem you have, then you can trust your gut on this. I think that's interesting. Um, On page 88, it gives the 11-step promises, which are pretty wonderful. 
says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. I do that. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. Now, when he writes it works, it really does, it's like Wilson is saying, I can hardly believe it, but this stuff that I've been telling you about really works, man. You know, it really works. It's like he's as amazed as we are. So we're going to take a, just a short pause here before we do the 12th step. Okay, Derek?